Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this mini-series of podcasts, we're looking at what life is like for families stuck in problem debt. We're bringing you first-hand stories that show what day-to-day struggle is like for families and how debt can bring people to dark places from which it's hard to escape. Stories are taken from the book Life in the Debt Trap by Saul Shimani and Larissa Popple, who both work as researchers for the Children's Society. In this second episode, we're with Saoirse, who's going to read Alex's story, which is about debt and loss and the way in which life can spiral out of control. So you want to know about the debts then, Alex asks, and with that, his interview begins. None of the opening conversational dance that often takes place, helping to make the process feel less formal, more relaxed. He's here to tell his story, and he does so without fanfare, sitting in a dreary station cafe, competing with the clinking of crockery and intermittent train announcements. He avoids eye contact, jumps to the safe parts of his narrative and those at the forefront of his memory, backfilling the gaps and letting the absences speak louder than words. Alex's debt story began in 2015. He was living with his wife and their two boys in a two-bedroom house in the southeast of England, where they had lived for seven years. He worked full-time in a warehouse and his wife worked part-time in a local supermarket. Their boys were aged eight and six. Joseph, the eldest, played the trumpet, which he had recently started learning at school, and Max, the youngest, was a dedicated minecrafter and football enthusiast. Life was busy but pretty average, and financially they managed, just about. While the household income did not allow them to save anything, it helped to keep them afloat. With their joint monthly earnings of around £2,200, child benefit of around £135, tax credits of around £100 and housing benefit of around £150 each month, they managed to pay their rent of £900 and their bills, which totaled around £1,100 a month. They also ran a small second-hand car. Alex had two credit cards, his wife had some store cards and they had a catalogue account and an overdraft facility and they considered these extras necessary for living a life that felt far from extravagant but which enabled them to do more than just scrimp and struggle. To buy decent clothes, to upgrade the computer when necessary, to take the boys on holiday once a year, to go on the odd day trip or for a meal out or to take the boys to the cinema at the weekend. He says, I mean, we weren't living the high life or anything, just sort of getting by, I suppose, with a few treats, you know. With the £300 left over from the household income each month after paying the bills and other expenses, they made the minimum repayments to their creditors and sometimes they managed to pay the full amounts owed on the store cards. Things felt manageable, if tight. Debt, which Alex thinks probably amounted to around a few thousand odd at the time, was an integral part of everyday life, woven into the fabric of their existence, and not something they had reason to think about very much. In the spring of 2015, all of this changed. Alex fell into a deep depression, was signed off work and put on medication to reduce the suicidal thoughts that had begun to haunt him. His marriage broke down. Eventually, his wife would move out, also suffering from profound psychological distress, heavily medicated and unable to work. At first, Alex doesn't speak of the catalyst for these events. He refers to a trauma that the family experienced, but he avoids the specifics until, in their absence, they scream to be told. Only halfway through our time together does he name the horror that had made his world collapse, that made the will to live escape him for a while. In April 2015, Alex's youngest son, Max, died. 
It was sudden and unexpected, and the grief that followed was of a type and magnitude, knowable only to parents who have lost a child. It bore down on Alex and his wife individually, and it became wedged between them until it prized their marriage apart. For a while, the practicalities of life became a secondary concern. Alex doesn't remember eating or washing in the weeks after Max's death. Only fitful sleep, a crushing weight on his chest, and a slow constricting of the muscles in his throat which left him gasping for breath in the night and unable to express his pain. His mother stepped in. She took Joseph to school and picked him up and offered what little comfort she could while dealing herself with the loss of her youngest grandson. Alex's wife moved out towards the end of summer, her grief too much to bear, and Alex and Joseph began the slow, terrible process of learning to live alongside their loss. Alex returned to work and set about trying to sort out his finances, aware that the reduced rate of pay he had received while on compassionate leave was not sustainable and increasingly uncomfortable with the pile of creditors' letters and payment demands that had been growing in his peripheral vision. Joseph became increasingly withdrawn and angry and Alex felt guilty that a lot of the time he was too distractive to give Joseph the attention he needed. Although Alex returned to work full-time and on full pay, the monthly household income was now reduced to a single salary of £1,300. And this wasn't enough to cover the outgoings, even with the existing benefits, which brought in approximately £350. He applied for additional support with housing costs, but found himself stuck in a backlog of other requests, making do as best he could. He relied on the overdraft and credit cards to cover basic household expenses. It used to be like the credit cards for the extras, but then it turned out to be like using them for food and bills and that, he said. He struggled to meet the cost of school for Joseph, the meals, the uniform, the trips, the after-school clubs and trumpet lessons. His mother chipped in and his estranged wife contributed whenever she could. But Alex understood only too well the depth of her despair and her own financial precarity. Alex couldn't put petrol in the car and relied more and more on his mother for lifts to and from work. He started to take Joseph to his mother's place every evening, where it was warmer and where they could have hot baths and meals, which they couldn't do at home. Alex was appreciative of his mother's help and ashamed that he had to rely on it. A friend came over, saw there wasn't much food in the fridge and offered to take Alex shopping. Alex was grateful and utterly humiliated. When Joseph asked if he could have some friends over after school, Alex said no, he couldn't afford to feed himself or Joseph properly, let alone other people's children. Alex's friend invited him to the pub to try to cheer him up, and he laughed at the simple impossibility of accepting the offer and at the bigger, messy awfulness of what was happening. By early autumn, Alex's everyday life had come to be defined not only by Max's absence, his wife's departure and the psychological strains of single parenthood, but also by the relentless and seemingly fruitless struggle to make ends meet, the constant juggling of financial priorities referred to by many of our participants as robbing Peter to pay Paul when the money coming in doesn't cover what is owed. In late September, Alex received a letter from his landlord notifying them that he had missed the previous month's rent payment and that he needed to pay what was owed and ensure he kept up with payments in the future. Alex called the letting agent and explained the situation, asking for another month to get back on track. He felt sure by then that his application for increased housing benefit would have been processed. The landlord agreed, but also advised Alex that the rent would be going up at the start of the next financial year. The neighbourhood had started to gentrify and Alex's rent was now below the current market level for the local area. Alex asked his employer for a raise 
and when his request was denied, he asked if he could work extra hours, but was told that wouldn't be possible. So he sold his car for scrap and got £75, and sold a few pieces of furniture that he'd inherited from his grandfather and got £160, at considerable cost emotionally, but nowhere near enough to cover the rent arrears, let alone any of the other debts, which by now amounted to over £10,000. Alex used the cash he had raised to pay the arrears on Joseph's school dinners and buy him a new pair of shoes, as the ones he was wearing were two sizes too small. He also did a food shop for the first time in months, although he had stopped eating proper meals himself and lived on snacks and Joseph leftovers. He considered moving to an area where rent would be lower, but that would entail moving away from his mother and starting Joseph in a new school, neither of which Alex judged to be in Joseph's best interests. His mother was a crucial source of support for them both, and school was one of the few areas of stability in Joseph's life. The weeks rolled on, they turned into months, and the chill of winter pierced the air outside and in. The gas meter remained empty, and the electricity meter hovered in the emergency zone. Any cooking was done in the microwave. The house was damp, and it was now impossible to dry clothes properly once they'd been washed. In the gaps between work and looking after Joseph, Alex contacted as many of his creditors as he could, explaining again and again what had happened, trying to negotiate reduced monthly payments and reliving Max's death over and over. But mostly these endeavours were unsuccessful. Christmas came and went in a blur. The yawning chasm left by Max's absence stretched ever further open. Alex began to feel that despite his very best efforts and all the love in his heart, He was failing in his duty as a father. In the new year, Alex and Joseph visited their doctor. She increased Alex's dosage of antidepressants and prescribed sleeping tablets and prescribed Joseph antibiotics to get rid of the chesty cough that had been lingering for weeks. She also diagnosed Joseph with trichotillomania, an impulse control disorder defined by the urge to pull one's hair out, usually from the head but also from the eyebrows and eyelashes and associated with stress anxiety, guilt, shame and low self-esteem. The doctor also made two referrals, one for Joseph to an asthma clinic and the other for Alex to a food bank, a saving grace and the straw that broke him. They went home, Alex sat at the kitchen table and wept. Until now, he had assumed that their financial situation was temporary, daunting but one that they could recover from. But it was becoming evident that this was unlikely. No amount of penny-pinching or juggling was going to lift them out of the debt trap. Two days after visiting the GP, Alex received another letter from his landlord, serving him notice to quit, as he had not paid the arrears on his rent. He was to leave the property by the end of the month. It's not clear from Alex's interview whether he ever did receive the increased housing benefit payments that he would have been entitled to. But even if he did, the changes to support with housing costs that came into force in 2013 as part of the government's welfare reform bill, could well have meant that any housing benefit entitlement would have failed to cover Alex's housing costs. In any case, Alex didn't wait until the end of the month to move out. That evening, he called his mother, borrowed her car and filled it with the belongings from the house that he and Joseph needed most. Clothes, shoes, toiletries, the laptop, Joseph's school things, bike and trumpet, a box of Lego and some books. They stayed with Alex's mother for a short time. She lived in a small one-bedroom flat and Alex and Joseph slept in the living room, Alex on the floor and Joseph on the sofa with their belongings scattered about the room. 
But Alex's mother had a partner who visited often and relationships quickly became strained as overcrowding, long-buried resentments and the persistence of grief came together in toxic combination. Three weeks after moving in, Alex came to blows with his mother's partner and that afternoon he contacted the local council to declare himself and Joseph homeless. That evening they moved into emergency accommodation, a hostel designed for and for the most part inhabited by single homeless men, many of whom suffered with alcohol and drug problems. They were told they would be there for a few weeks until something more suitable could be found. When I interviewed Alex, he and Joseph had been living in the hostel for five months. They were on a waiting list for a flat, but weren't sure when they might be moving or where they might end up. Thank you, Sorsha. Uh, that's a really difficult story to listen to. Um, as well as Sorsha, we're joined again by Larissa and Sam Royston, um, the Director of Policy and Research at the Children's Society and author of Broken Benefits, which is also published by Policy Press. Um, I wanted to ask you, Sorsha, how do you manage difficult stories like Alex's as a so- social researcher? Um I think people, different people will manage them in very different ways. I think at the time, it's, it, you have a duty to just listen and you have to kind of contain your own emotional response mm. a bit. Um, for me, it's, it's then when I come out of the interview situation that I tend to phone Larissa or yeah. one of my other <laughs> colleagues. Um, I think what's interesting and one of the things that we raise in the book is that part, a big part of what we do as social researchers is kind of this idea of bearing witness to other people's pain yeah. or hardship. Not, not because that's what we want to do, but if we're researching issues where you know, there's, there's challenge, there's struggle, it, it's going to come up. But as a profession, there's no kind of formal structure for acknowledging that. Okay. Um, whereas something like, you know, counselling or psychotherapy, that's just in the system that you have supervisor. Who'd... Obviously, we have line managers, and mm. at the Children's Society, we have um, a kind of protocols for checking in and out of interviews. Mm. Um, so we've always got a colleague who's checking in on us, and, and as well as checking in just that we've made it to the interview and that we've come out they're they're checking in that we you know on our own well-being as well because a lot of the things that we that we do research are you know they're they're obviously awful um as alex's story illustrates for the people experiencing them um and they they can be quite hard to to kind of listen to but at the time I think I think it's really important at the time that you contain your own emotional response to it because you're it's not about you no it's about them um actually when I first wrote that story Sam read a draft of it I don't know if you remember Sam um, uh, yes and one of his responses was it feels a little bit too much like it's about you because I'd ended with the reflections on okay um what it was like doing the interview and I took it out completely and then it just felt like it needed to be back in there because although that isn't the point of the research the point is to write about the issues it it needs to be said it needs to be said because increasingly you know people are uh, going on about evidence-based decisions and that's really important there's and increasingly i think there's a a kind of acceptance of qualitative research and mm-hmm. an acceptance of of stories and storytelling in the context of research and if we're going to do that 
you need to recognise that there's that that is a dynamic, that that is an issue, that somebody is there listening to the stories and it has an impact. And there's an element of interpretation in the storytelling Ex- exactly. as well, isn't there? That's yeah. important to recognise. Yeah. Um, so the point of telling these stories, though, is to understand what happens to people. And we can see in Alex's story that life events are a trigger for falling into financial precarity and that has huge mental and physical consequences for people. So it would be great if you could talk through a little bit about what happened to Alex and what that meant for him. I th- yeah, I think he, his is a, a kind of classic example of how... It, it's, it's like dominoes, or it's like a... a I don't want to use the word perfect example, but it, it is a perfect example of, of how... Something happens that leads to something else that has another impact that leads to something else, and then they just end up in this spiral towards what we've called the debt trap. Um, and it's it's the way that those life events kind of it could be nothing financial, i.e., a bereavement, mm. which then has financial implications because you might not get as much money, or it could be a relationship breakdown, which then means that, you know, it's it's the flitting between a life event and then the financial impact, which then can lead to other non-financial issues, which then lead to other financial hardships. I think it's that kind of... It's the way that it can all just act like dominoes. And in, in Alex's story, what really struck me doing that interview was how he it was like he was abandoned there was there was nobody who apart from in the story his landlord had kind of given him a bit of a bit of grace but there were plenty of other examples in the book where people were phoning up either landlords or council tax departments and begging for a bit of respite and they were just told no it felt like there were many moments in Alex's story where if someone had done something to help him out a little bit the whole spiral could have been broken potentially I don't know things like um, the policies for pay when for compassionate leave Mm. if they had been slightly different that may have reined things in a bit for him and allowed him to cope with his grief a little bit more I think also one of the things that we noticed in our in the sample there were some of the participants who had been signposted towards a kind of debt um, advice agency and and others who hadn't and I think there's something about there's something about a a lack of information for for people where they don't realize there are these organizations that exist that can help, that won't pay the debts off for them, but that can help them to do a management plan and mm-hmm. feel like they've got some kind of control back. Um, so there's an issue around information. Is that not a standard thing, then, for people to get referred to a debt advice agency? No. No, and several of our participants told us about the various different steps that they'd taken, and many of them were really accidental, Really? So someone might have um, had a friend that had said, you've got to go to Citizens Advice, for example. And when they went to Citizens Advice, they said, well, we're not really very well placed to help you with this specific issue. But, And it was the luck of the draw. Some people got referred um, to a debt advice charity 
from a catalogue to whom they own they are, they owed a lot of money, but it that you you got the impression from all of these different fairly accidental stories of how they ended up talking to somebody who could help them, um, that it really depended on who was at the other end of the phone or whether a friend knew about it or whether you know something else happened in in quite an incidental way. I think there's, I just assume that was part of the system. Part the, of the well, process. A, I, I think there's a real lack of uh, access to advice at the moment. Um, there's been you know we know that all kinds of different organisations are struggling um, at, at the minute, particularly many voluntary and community sector organisations, particularly ones that are supported by local authorities where kind of local local government um, budgets are under a lot of pressure. Actually, as demand has kind of increased for access to a lot of these services, actually the provision that's available has, has, has often fallen. So there's a real, real issue about um, it, it kind of access to free uh, independent um, confidential advice at the moment is a, re- a, a real challenge. Which is quite short-sighted, isn't it? Really? Well, the, I suppose the other thing is that it also risks people getting wrong advice. You know, if they're relying on kind of what their friends tell them or yeah. what a colleague mm-hmm. at work tells them, rather than getting um, kind of the high-quality um, professional advice that they that they need, um, then um, then you know it can it could in some circumstances make make their problems worse. Mm-hmm. People people shouldn't be. It's, People shouldn't be providing providing uh, debt advice. Debt advice, as a is a regulated activity. You, mm. you know, you shouldn't. You're not allowed to provide um, provide debt advice. That doesn't mean that people aren't just going on, you know, and acting on what 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 a friend friend tells yeah. them. In in uh, you get the same problem with um, benefits advice as well. Mm. And actually, probably probably worse. Benefits advice mm. isn't even a regulated activity. You know, there's no legal. There's no legal protections of you know to to, to prevent people providing um, advice on what people are entitled to, but the kind of consequences of wrong advice, you know, oh, you wouldn't be entitled to that because um, can be you know just as just as severe because it can mean that people you know don't get don't get access to something that they might be entitled to, mm-hmm. or you know they don't get the help that they need with filling out a form, so the wrong form gets submitted or the mm-hmm. wrong information gets put on the form, and people don't get access to the help to the help that they need. There's much much more um, the, the support that needs to be given to advice agencies at the minute. I think it ties in also with the issue of shame and stigma um, because we found in with with our participants that sometimes they were just too they felt too humiliated to to turn to anyone or they they selected very carefully who they would tell so people aren't asking for so it they're not yeah, yeah because they they feel like it's it's too humiliating to um, for example not be able to pay for the basics that's something that every parent should be able to do like for Alex when his friend offered to take him shopping and get shopping yeah, for and him. that it was, was a painful moment yeah it was it was necessary but it, mm-hmm. but it was quite excruciating for him and to have to rely on his mum as an adult that, that was quite a common feature mm-hmm. 
um, among the parents. There's a there's a really interesting uh, specific issue that's mentioned in Alex's story of um, self disconnection from um, from from uh, gas uh, energy supplies. So it talks about him. Um, you know, the gas meter remained empty and the electricity meter hovered in the emergency zone, you know, Mm. of people not putting, particularly people on prepayment meters, not putting money in meter. And um, there's Mm. been much more over the last 15 years, there's been much more of a move to rather than disconnecting people, you know, disconnections are extremely low, moving people to prepayment meters in some ways that just hides the problem because mm-hmm. if people haven't got money to put in the meter they're then left in exactly the same yeah. same um, situation and that's why people call it self-disconnection mm-hmm. it's not that their electricity or their gas has been cut off because mm-hmm. they haven't paid the bills because energy suppliers by and large don't do that anymore or do it much much less um, but actually if people are on a, have been moved to a prepayment meter and there's you know, often it will be, you know, energy companies should kind of check that um, or that people aren't kind of self-disconnecting, that people are putting something in, um, but often won't do so for quite lengthy periods of time. Uh, and, you know, if somebody is not leaving, put, turning on their gas or putting very, very minimal amounts in, in some ways that could be worse, it means that it's not registered or, or it might not be registered as a disconnection if you're just putting a pound or two mm-hmm. in. But, you know, if you're talking about January and somebody's putting a couple of pounds in the meter to kind of heat their entire home, then something's probably going wrong, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a there is a particular challenge at the moment about self-disconnection and one of the important sources of advice for people in situations like Alex actually is getting in touch with their energy company and making sure that their energy company is aware but if they're on a prepayment meter they not may not think that there's much that their energy company might might mm. would w- w- be able to do but you know that's one of the practical steps they could take to maybe help sort things out a little bit and I suppose there must be is there more help in local welfare um, that people could be seeking if they're in situations like Alex's? Uh, well, increasingly, um, the provision of particularly emergency financial support um, is being uh, has been passed over to local authorities to address. So things like um, if somebody has a kind of crisis, which means that they uh, you know, can't afford to turn the gas on or can't afford uh, in the winter or can't afford um, food for themselves or kind of urgently need to replace a kind of home item like a fridge or a freezer or whatever, then it's increasingly become the role of local government uh, to provide that. Up to about 2013, there was a national scheme of assistance, um, crisis loans for living expenses, community care grants, which provided some of that help with emergency costs. But that that was scrapped and local government was asked to do some of that work in their place. But often the the schemes that have been set up have been very, very minimal um, because local government doesn't have the money to do more. Um, And one of the things that really needs doing is making sure that uh, local government is effectively funded now one thing i would say in alex's circumstance i'm not sure how much that would actually have helped because in some ways his crisis is ongoing 
you know you've got an ongoing low level very low level of income and you know emergency financial support should be that it should be you know occasional it should be in in you know a, a one-off intervention ideally um to help deal with a with an immediate an immediate crisis um it shouldn't be about providing that kind of ongoing provision uh, over an extended period of time but one thing that can be important about getting help uh, emergency help is when organizations become aware that somebody has faced an emergency then they may make a referral on to other sources of support that may help them like a debt advice agency or similar that yeah. may help yeah. them to address the longer term circumstance uh, their their longer term um, issues their underlying problems and help to prevent the recurrence of those problems yeah. so if you had an effective scheme of local welfare assistance actually you know it's as much about it would be as much about making sure that alex did get access to debt advice and making the referral onto that agency as it really would be about providing that immediate support to make sure he's able to eat his home or maybe and make sure he's able to feed himself because it's in that moment where he seeks the emergency support that he becomes visible exactly and, then he can, and there's can that opportunity to to kind of make sure he's getting all of the help that he needs yeah and i think with with a lot of the participants there was there was often so much going on. It, it's never just one thing. There was, you know, in, in Alex's case, there was a bereavement. There was then his breakup, the breakdown of his relationship and split up with his wife, which then had this impact on the household income and, there, it, and, and then the housing issues and, and other families where there's, you know, a relationship breakdown and then they can't pay the council tax or you know there's always more than one thing and when you put children in the mix which all of our families um you know they all of our research participants had children in the household that adds a whole other layer there's there's always so much going on and and what that means is that those referrals need to be kind of multifaceted it will never just be yeah. to a debt advice agency it's, it it would be to you know advice on housing advice on debt advice on actually in his case the kind of probably the medical conditions yeah. that had arisen as well it, it it just seems in some cases so overwhelming but for the participants who had received some kind of help that I think it'd be interesting to know what you think Larissa but it was there was a noticeable sense of relief because they had just been able to share the burden of mm -hmm. their story they'd told it to even if it was just to somebody down the phone or then to a random researcher who turns up on your doorstep <laughs> there's something about sharing your story um that is was quite powerful I think and people. then that helps to move on to the next step doesn't it and try and address the next issue if you feel a bit stronger in one area yeah it makes yeah. you a bit more resilient one thing I found really striking about Alex's story was that I wasn't actually involved in um, this interview or some of the others that sorted it while I was on maternity leave and um, so I was reading this story for the first time once Saoirse had written it up and we'd already talked about how you go about sort of conveying the story without um, identifying the, the individual participant in the individual family. Um, and I was really aware of the sort of the different pressures that 
a researcher might be under compared to some of our colleagues who work in you know policy and mm. campaigns and they maybe have I don't know three uh, several seconds or several minutes to grab someone's attention and draw them in and try and make them care about a topic yeah. and we were really aware that a story like Alex's is that kind of story um, and but as researchers we, we're also really conscious of wanting to present lots of different types of stories some of which are much more subtle in terms of the suffering that's being that's experienced true. so it, for us there was something about needing to be true to the stories I kept on saying to Sorcha about this story and there's one or two others in particular that I remember I said that didn't happen there's no way that happened and and she was saying it did I had to you had to tone things down to a degree because it just it sounded as if we were just trying to sort of get all of the misfortune into one place yeah but there was as Sorcha says so much going on that it, you know, it really was you know, a balancing act, and um, and you know, and I suppose it speaks a little to to I think your first question and how do you handle um, such difficult stories like yeah. Alex's, and and one thing is they have to be told, mm. and they have to be told in such a way that people understand that this, you know, this is a reality. But also, I think they personally, I think they have to be told alongside other stories which are perhaps less striking, less tragic. Um, less sort of like something that could be compartmentalised and think well that's going to happen to to, um, to a few people thankfully it's not going to happen to anyone I know um, and, and in a way that sort of strengthens the story that sort of you know that, that acknowledgement that there are many different ways and more subtle ways as well you know in which people can, can suffer. I think that's where the book works really well isn't it because it does put all the stories together and there are there, the stories are very very different but it, it may, you are able to see these themes that run through them all thank you everyone for that and um, that was great um, I should say that both Life in the Debt Trap and Broken Benefits uh, well, more information about both books is available on our website which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk